episode of Plague Diaries, Boston being part of that theme. Anyway, I'd like to thank everyone for checking this out. Uh, we're here on episode 20 of the Plague Diary. And uh, yeah, last episode, I couldn't believe we'd done 19 of these things. But uh, yeah, we're up to 20. And uh, this finds us in the closing weeks, closing days of uh, 2020 possibly one of our worst years <laughs> uh, probably one of my worst years uh, so yeah I hope everyone's doing well and this finds us in um, a seasonal mood since we have Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever you guys uh, celebrate out there coming up and I hope uh, people are able to um, have some semblance of a holiday and uh, yeah we have, a gap. we have a vaccine, which um, is exciting news. I'm not sure how everyone feels about it. I have, um, you know, a very positive outlook on that. And, um, yeah, I mean, I've, I'm not really a big uh, vaccination person. I mean, I've the, I, the, the last time I got any kind of vaccine, aside from a tetanus shot, was um, when I was a kid. But this time around, uh, you know, I think it's important uh, to go ahead and check this out and get vaccinated. And um, since humanity has a problem with uh, self-control and, uh, you know, diligence on that level, I think a vaccination is probably the only way uh, we're going to get out into the world again. And I know that everyone out there is uh, probably suffering a little bit of cabin fever like me. And I um, was looking forward to getting into the world, getting back to some kind of semblance of a normal life. And hopefully 2021 leads us down that pathway. I'm uh, trying to be optimistic about that. There was a bit of bad news this week that I received. Um, I'm not sure how many of you guys might be familiar with this writer, but uh, Mike McBeardo McPatton passed away unexpectedly. Um, I saw on uh, social media that there's not much information. A few days ago, he passed away. Uh, that one of the co-hosts at Necromaniacs let me know about it, and uh, it was kind of a shock. I don't know how many of you guys out there listen to the other podcast, Necromaniacs, or follow horror films, but uh, Mike was a guest, I don't know, maybe four years ago, five years ago, something like that. Great guy. Um, you know, I, I really was shocked. I mean, he's a young man, um, way too young to pass away. And I remember Magnus over at Bazillion Points hooked me up, or actually Magnus is no longer at Bazillion Points, but um, back then he was working PR for them. And uh, Mike's book, uh, Heavy Metal Movies, had come out. And 
you know, Magnus pitched him as a possible guest for one of the various things that I was involved in. And uh, we had him on Necromaniacs. And one of, one of my favorite episodes, you know, we, we typically haven't done a whole lot of uh, interviews on that particular podcast, but uh, it was something that I really enjoyed. His book was awesome. He's just uh, was such an interesting guy uh, providing a viewport into the seedy world of uh, exploitation cinema in uh, Times Square, New York City. And we were looking forward to having him back on. And, and um, man, just, just, it just goes to show you, you can't wait for these things. You know, we, we talked back and forth about uh, meeting up this is before the pandemic, doing an ep- another episode of Necro. Uh, future books, projects, like all this exciting stuff, and uh, never came to pass. And uh, yeah, it just made me think about how you, sh- you just can't wait for things these days. If you have an idea, you just got to get after it and, and go for it. And uh, yeah, I... I'm not going to, you know, go on and on how, you know, we were never great friends or, you know, he just was someone that popped in in my life and I thought he was a really cool guy. And I was hoping someday that, you know, we, we would become, become friends actually. I mean, you know, we'd done a bit of correspondence and I just seemed like a really, really nice person and interesting guy, talented writer. And it just said, you know, maybe uh, kind of took me aback this week. And, um, yeah, if you guys out there are interested in that kind of stuff, head over to Bazillion Points and check out some of his books. And I, I think that uh, you, you would enjoy it. He's a very, very good writer, cool guy, got a lot of interesting viewpoints on these kinds of things. So, yeah, uh, last episode we talked about WJUL live at the Fallout Shelter and performing live on the radio. And uh, Kevin checked out the episode and got back to me and reminded me of Sam Black Church. And uh, I'm not sure how many of you guys are familiar with that band, but uh, there was they were one of the most popular bands in New England during the 90s. And I remember when I first moved to Boston that uh, I went to a show at Bunratty's and it was only the witness, the band who brought us in and Sam Black Church. And I was thinking about how I was just blown away by how intense that band was live. And and I, I had become a big fan of theirs during that era. But, you know, Kevin, thanks for letting me know that there's actually a documentary about this band available. And uh, I, I'm going to pick up a copy. I uh, haven't had a chance to look for it yet, but I'm going to try to order a copy and check it out. I did a little bit of reading on it. Uh, Jonah Jenkins, frontman of uh, Only Even Witness, is on there, and there's interviews of people like Paige Hamilton talking about the band. And yeah, they were, they were an important band, especially during that era. And I'm talking about the early '90s, you know, '90 to say, you know, '95 is what I'm talking about for me personally. And uh, yeah, SBC, they originally were from uh, West Virginia and relocated to Boston. It's like two brothers, uh, Jesse, a.k.a. Jet, and Ben, and uh, a couple other guys in the band. Uh, J.R. Roche, I remember him on drums. Uh, Richard played uh, played bass for them. 
And then the dude from, uh, what the fuck was the other band he was in? Anyway, Zach ended up playing bass for them at some point during the 90s. And uh, JR and I actually worked together at the Newberry Comics, uh, where, <laughs> the Newberry Comics Rock and Roll Warehouse for a bit of time around 96, 97, around that era. That's a, that was a funny place. And I don't know if, if you guys are New Englanders, you definitely know about Newberry Comics. And if you live in different parts of the country, they were kind of like, for better or worse, the hot topic before hot topic. Uh, and and I, I, I don't mean that to be in a derogatory way because though I've never actually stepped foot in a hot topic, reconnaissance has told me about what kind of stuff they get into but yeah newberry comics started out in the in the you know the 80s uh total local thing these two guys that used to go to mit started it mike Dries and this this other dude uh and uh yeah the flagship store on newberry street i remember going in there all through my time spent living in boston I mean, I, I, I grew up in the, su- the suburbs of New York City, and uh, but I've spent a lot of time in Boston, and so it's kind of like a bastard second home for me. I can't say I love Boston, but I have a lot of great friends up there, and I can't say I had... There's been good times and bad times in that city. Some you know negative shit as well as some really cool stuff. So I got a love-hate relationship with that city. And, uh, yeah, I just never fit into the New England vibe, I guess. But uh, anyway, uh, yeah, I I thought that was one of the best record stores I'd ever been into. They got, you know, at least for a time. I don't know how it is now. I haven't been in there in years. So I'm just talking about the late 80s and the early 90s when I used to go in there and you could find all this you know, amphetamine, reptile, alternative tentacles, discord, you know, early black metal stuff, uh, you know, earache records, like everything, man. All the stuff that I was into at the time you would be able to find in this place, as well as a pretty excellent selection of books. You know, like, uh, you know, apocalypse culture, like stuff like that. You know, death scenes. Uh, I think I actually purchased uh, Total Abuse, the collection of uh, Peter Sotos's early material, uh, at Newberry Comics. So that goes to show you how fringe and kind of left of center that place was. They had great buyers for music and books. There was, Of course, there was comic books there, graphic novels, T-shirts, all that kind of stuff. And as time went on, and this is now I'm talking about the era when I joined up at the uh, warehouse because it was the one job that you could have in that city where you could go on tour for months at a time and still come back and have a job. So all these guys and bands worked there. And uh, dudes from ISIS early, you know, before they were like a big thing, you know, like Aaron Harris worked there, um, you know, Clifford Meyer, uh, Mike Gallagher. At the time, Mike Gallagher was in uh, Cast Iron Hike. And uh, it was during that time period, you know, JR. Some guys from Blood for Blood worked there. Uh, you know, that dude Gibby who was in uh, Panic and all these kind of oi bands. And I don't know, he, I, I don't really know that guy that well. I just know that he was this kind of chameleon 
moving in and out of like the punk and the hardcore scene and the kind of gothic dance hipster kind of thing. In a way, I guess Gibby was a proto hipster in the way that most people have come to recognize or define that word in the early part of the new millennium, you know, I don't know. It's a non sequitur, I guess. Anyway, back to Sam Black Church. I remember being a young man going to Bunratty's to see this show that everyone had recommended to me, Sam Black Church and Only Living Witness. Only Living Witness, I was blown away by the vocalist, man. You know, Jonah, who years later I'd actually become fairly good friends with and grown to really uh, admire his vocal ability. And at that time, I was like, man, this motherfucker can really sing. You know, and the music was cool. It was, you know, just sort of, uh, you know, heavy, metallic, hardcore with like a very rock, kind of like a heavy rock feel to it. And uh, that was uh, the early 90s were interesting for hardcore. Uh, I felt like what, what I had grown to think of hardcore music in the late 80s was being redefined in the early 90s. You know what I mean? Like there was a lot of like metallic like influence uh, seeping its way. Uh, you know, bands like Marauder, um, Integrity, obviously. Um, you know, Only Live a Witness, you know, Starkweather. Like all these bands had a, a very metal like feel to it. And some of that, that's a lot of the music from that era that I find that holds up more. And then also let's, let's not forget grunge, the influence of bands like, you know, the Northwest bands, you know, Soundgarden, I remember was a really heavy influence on a lot of people in, in the, in the early nineties. Uh, you know, that you can hear their influence in a lot of different bands and dudes that played in hardcore bands were, were seeping up all this influence and starting newer projects. And, uh, I guess in some ways, like, I don't know, some people call it like post hardcore or whatever. I, I don't, I don't like to make these, uh, these generalizations, I guess. But uh, Witness played, was was sick, thought it was great. And then uh, <laughs> fucking Sam Black Church comes on, and it was like a bomb had went off, man. It was like these guys, that fucking singer dudes jumping all over, the doing backflips, and the, the music is like kind of chaotic and, uh, you know, like I said, very metal. Uh, front, the jet was like one of the hands down. Hands down, one of the best front men I've ever seen. You know, the guy, like, really knew how to work a crowd. He had a pretty crazy voice. It was pretty obvious to me. Um, for, well, actually, for anyone out there who's never heard the band before, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is Bad Brains, obviously. And, uh, yeah, I mean, obvious Bad Brains influence with the vocals. You know, a lot of time changes, like the musicianship in that band is pretty, pretty great. Like the Bad Brains, who are like, you know, hyper, hyper progressive musicians, like shredders. All, all the members of the Bad Brains are completely shredders on, on whatever instrument they play. And, um, you know, SBC kind of, you know, all those guys were very proficient at their, their instruments, great guitar riffs, great bass playing, great drumming. And just over-the-top crazy vocals, you know, very HR-inspired, you know. And, and I, I don't want to detract from them, but, yes, they, you know, you can say that there was a 
you know, a big thing going on with the Bad Brains and that band. So uh, back then, having a record out, to me at least, was a major accomplishment. So I discovered that these guys had were on Tang Records, which was a pretty legendary record label, uh, the way I see it. I mean, Poison Idea was on that label. Um, you know, Slapshot, you know, for love them or hate them, Slapshot was an important band. Uh, one of my favorite bands, Bolt La Volta, was on that uh, label before they got signed to a major. That's a band, another band that most people need to check out if you haven't heard them already. I can spend a whole episode talking about them, and maybe I will. So that immediately I had respect. I'm like, okay, these guys are the real deal. You know, they're on, they're on, uh, you know, this fucking label that puts out a bunch of cool stuff. You know, Kill Slug, Mission of Burma, great. You know, the Lemonheads. You know, kind of like a weird. Well, you know what? Fuck that. Maybe in 2020, looking back, the Lemonheads seemed like an odd fit on that label. But in the early 90s, man, the late 80s. The Lemonheads were pretty punk rock. If you go back and you listen to those early records, like Creator and, you know, they have a record called Creator, not the band. But there was like a, yeah, like a punk rock thing going on, like a very Husker Du, um, you know, Bob Mould replacements kind of thing. They had a lot of these references to Charles Manson, which I really dug. And uh, yeah, I mean, it all made sense. Sam Black Church, Lemonheads, Slapshot, Bolt La Volta, you know, Mission of Burma, you know, Spore, who my former bandmate Al Nayor was on. It was in Spore. Very poison idea. Like, you can't, you know, just look at that lineup. Tang Records. They had the record store in Harvard Square. The kids will have their say, which was a pretty crucial place back then. And Sam Black Church was part of that. And um, then I also discovered they were on the East Coast Assault uh, compilation, which, you know, that had, uh, you know, Starkweather was on that, another incredible band, uh, Marauder, like one of my early favorites. And, uh, yeah, they were the real deal. And, you know, for years they dominated Massachusetts and the rest of New England as, like, one of the biggest draws, like, around and, you know, back in that period, for me, I, I, I wasn't thinking in, in the national way or global way that I think that I started thinking later in life. But to me, if you if you were like a big band just in your hometown, I thought that was awesome. But these these guys could play all over New England and draw tons of people to their shows and put on these incredible live things. And I thought that was like just like one of the coolest things ever. A couple of years later, um, I'd started this other band, Otis, and we were um, rising up through the ranks of local bands and regional bands or bands in New England or whatever you want to call it. And, uh, you know, that band never, even though we toured in Europe and, you know, from, we toured a lot of the country, I never really felt like we had become like a national thing. You know, we were you know, just kind of getting by doing our thing. But uh, we played a bunch of dates with Sam Black Church, and you know we got sort of friendly with those guys, and uh, we ended up sharing a practice space with them down in the in in the south end of Boston, which uh, was not what it is now. Like now, it's like 
a way different type of neighborhood than it was back then. And uh, so I thought that was cool. Like, you know, we were, we were sharing a practice space with this, like, in my mind, you know, the, the very successful band. And, uh, you know, we played shows together and all this kind of stuff. And I thought that was really cool. South Boston in the 90s, there was like all these, there was like the, the infamous Thayer Street, which is like where there were these lofts and all these like really cool, like artsy types had their, you know, lived there. And, uh, you know, there would, there would be loft shows. I've never went to any of these Thayer Street loft shows myself. I think I'd come to live in that city maybe after the heyday of that scene. But uh, I was told at least that there was like tons of loft shows down there. And, um, you know, Slaughter Shack was a big uh, player of those types of shows with my understanding at least. Uh, so our space was down there. Is uh, There was this guy, Dez, who runs all the practice. He's like the Tony Soprano of... Uh, Boston rehearsal studios. So he had a, you know, a, a space down there that was, he owned it. He had a, you know, he's has many spaces throughout Boston. And uh, we had this pretty killer spot down there. You can drive your van right into it, load out and then leave. It was cool. And uh, the neighborhood was like pretty dodgy. I remember. And at the time I was living in South Boston, a few, several blocks away uh, with a girlfriend that I had and the rest of the guys lived in Alston and uh, the van would they would drive the van to practice but I would walk oftentimes and I just remember uh, thinking like it was kind of like they would drive me back but you gotta remember the dude who owned the van or you don't have to remember because you probably don't know this in the first place but the guy who who had the van there was always like a weird thing between me and him and uh, I think he enjoyed the fact that uh, that he was forcing me to walk through this potentially dangerous neighborhood to get to practice. So a lot of times I'd, I'd arm myself with like mace or like a knife or something like that, you know, just in case uh, somebody tried to jump me. Because there's uh, there was always in the back of my mind, there was the infamous story. And I'm not going to give this guy, I'm not going to mention his name uh, because I, I don't want to contribute to the to his the fantasy of uh, a fantasy world of his uh persona but some of you might know him and uh, i just don't want to mention him by name because i i actually think that the majority of the legend that he has is mostly fake so this i do know happened so anyway he was walking around i guess he lived in that neighborhood in the, this South End neighborhood and was walking his dog and these people tried to steal his pit bull and he ended up, uh, you know, getting in a, fit, in a fight with these guys. Someone stabbed him and, you know, he uh, defended himself against these people and ended up stitching up his wound with dental floss or something like that. So that, that was the story and who knows how much of it's true. You know, so anyway, this guy, that story was always in the back of my mind whenever I walked to practice down there. And I was like, yeah, you know, if somebody jumps me. I need to be able to get the hell out of there in one piece. 
And uh, so I would walk around with this like mace that my girlfriend had at the time. And I wonder, I was, I didn't even know if it was, I, th- I think there's a shelf life on that stuff. So I don't know, but I'd also carry a knife and like all this stuff. And uh, yeah, so that, that was uh, the practice space scenario down there. And um, you know, we did a lot of, a lot of that band ultimately I thought was almost like, I would say Otis is a bit of an embarrassment for me musically. I can't really listen to that music and feel good about it, but it opened a lot of doors. It was the first band that I did where we did it. We did cool stuff, but yeah, we, we were, we shared with Sam Black Church and uh, yeah, I remember when I guess I hate to use the term alternative, but when alternative music started getting really big and uh you know bands like pan well i'm not saying they're they're not an alternative band but a band like pantera for example was flying the flag of heavy metal all through the early 90s and uh they were an incredibly successful band and um you know much respect to them for keeping things alive during a period where hard rock and heavy metal were kind of like not the most popular styles of music i mean I can say at the time, like that was the, the 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 sick of it all major label era. So they were out there doing their thing, you know, tw- playing these big shows, festivals, opening for Helmet. Biohazard was also another big band that you know was definitely in the conversation, you know. And I I always thought that Sam Black Church would have been a great entry. A, they they would have been at home with all those bands, incredible live show, great players. But uh, yeah, it's I, I I was I often wondered why they never were able to cross over that way. What what was the story behind all that? I mean, ultimately they disbanded I think in two thousand. So all through the nineties they were active. Um, they after their stint with Tang Records they signed to Wonder Drug, and uh, which is ran by my my high school friend. Ken Smar. Uh, but yeah, they never made it to a major label. And I thought they were like, you know, with bands like Machine Head and all that sort of stuff being signed to majors. I just never, and I never, I always wondered why they never got big in that way. Maybe it's like that Boston curse that everyone talks about. You know, I mean, it's, it's hard to really pinpoint why that band never got their, their, uh, their due. But anyway, I always thought they were great. I I've, would go out of my way to see them live because uh, it was just chaos whenever they played. And Boston was a rough place at that time too, man. And shows were notoriously violent during that period. And uh, Sam Black Church and um, another band of note is the band Tree, which I you know I I respect them more than I actually enjoy their music. Uh, they're just like a bunch of dudes who, you know, Dave, the singer was an, you know, he's an art guy, you know, skateboarder. Um, they didn't have a lot of, uh, you know, how should I put this, uh, technical ability, but they just worked really hard and hardest working band award would go to them. I, in my opinion, uh, you know, they, they were out there repping, Boston on the road in a way that a lot of other bands weren't in the, in that, that time frame. You know, I, I, 
I got to say, they, they probably inspired me to, 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 with the reality of the way, the way that they would tour. And I was like, man, if they can do this, then I can do this. And I, you know, I filed, I took, I took their lead, man. They, they were like a, a local band, a bunch of dudes. Like I'd seen them play a few times. I was like, eh, this is cool. You know, whatever. Not my thing. I wouldn't, wouldn't do this, you know, this type of music, but I had to give them credit for, for being a band that was actually doing it in a real way. And, um, once again, one of the biggest New England live bands, like in that era of hardcore music or whatever you want to call it. And uh, I remember uh, during when, when Anodyne was playing and, I, and occasionally Dave would show up at one of our shows and, you know, I'd talk to him briefly and I'd be like, yo, what's up, man? Like, you know, and he's, the band was still going up till a few years ago. As far as I know, they might still be active. They might still be getting together every now and then and playing shows. And I remember back in 2007, I read an interview with him online where um, he was talking about how every, once a year they go out and tour. And I, I, I don't know. I don't know how many, I don't know what the deal with their records were. If they put records out or um, they're just playing old songs or whatever. I know that they had a network of people that really dug them. And uh, in the interview, he was just talking about how, how he feels fortunate that he's just able to do this still. And I thought that was really cool because I, I have the same feeling. I mean, I, yeah, I feel fortunate to just to be able to go out and people still give a shit about the music I make. So that, that's, I thought that was really cool. Oh yeah. And by the way, tree and Otis, the old band I was in were on the same record label, cherry disc records. And, uh, you know, Tree outlived that label, which I thought was cool. It's always good to be that way, to outlive your, you know, to, to keep trucking past the expiration date when people think that you're going to fold, you know. I've made a lifestyle out of that, of uh, the keep on trucking mentality. But, but yeah, you know, Sam Black Church, it's uh, an unsung band at this stage of the game. And I think that, uh, you know, they're worth mentioning, especially on this podcast. And, um, yeah, so I don't know if I don't, if I don't put out another one of these before Christmas, uh, everyone have a great holiday. Uh, the other two shows I'm working on, Necromaniacs and Metal Matters, are on, uh, you know, we're on Christmas break. We're not going to do episodes until January. And um, so, yeah, we're getting into that season. And I just hope everyone's doing well. And uh, hang in there, and we'll talk to you next year. Take care now. Mm-hmm.